Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. 1 Samuel, we are in chapter 3 tonight. God uh, often does this. He, he will uh, look into a societal situation and he will pick out an individual. Even when things are dark, even when situation is dim, and he will choose that one to be a vessel. Now back up for a second. Now we saw that we opened with the story of Hannah, and she was barren, and we and we're wondering what's God up to, right? And she's year after year she goes to Shiloh for the festival, and Panina, the pain keeps giving her a bad time, and she's crying out to the Lord, and finally she gives birth to this child, but she's so desirous to have a son that she says, Lord, if you give me the son, I'll give him back to you. But could she have understood that that whole situation to dedicate Samuel would cause a new era to come into Israel where a prophet would be set aside. He would be the anointer of King Saul and then King David. He would set the tone for the nation. She couldn't have known that in her dark hours when she was barren and broken and and beaten down by life. And I told you sometimes in life what happens is a season of barrenness will precede a a season of blessing. And year by year, remember she made that little robe for him and she had to make it bigger every year. And she went and, and she saw him growing, but she couldn't have realized what God had planned for him. And, and I mentioned to you in previous messages in First Samuel that sometimes when we're concerning ourselves about the kingdom of God, we have to try to look even beyond our own generation. That's hard to do, but you know, to imagine maybe what your children or grandchildren might accomplish as you pray for them. Now Samuel is being uh, spoken to by the Lord, uh, as we'll see in a second. It happened at that time that as Eli was lying down, so we have the rare visions Eli is lying down in his place. Now his eyesight, 1 Samuel 3.2, had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. Some of the people in the room say amen because you have those little glasses everywhere. And I, can, I feel your pain. And I'm not, not going to make fun of you. And the NIV says Eli could barely see. You're going to notice that in this particular text, some of the descriptions of the physical ailments of Eli and the surroundings where Samuel and Eli are found are descriptive of more than just a physical situation. They actually speak of a spiritual reality. Sometimes in the Bible, like in John 9, there was a man born blind, and that whole issue is about spiritual perception. The blind man actually was the one who could see, and those who could see were actually blind, John chapter 9. In John 5, there's a man by the pool of Bethesda, and he's been sick for a long time, and and he's in that condition because of some sin that he's committed. And Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? There's a woman in the book of Luke who's been bent over for years and years and years. She can't straighten up, and Luke tells us a spirit is involved in that. And in some way, she's bent over. And she gets healed on the Sabbath day. I called that message when I taught from Luke, straightened out on the Sabbath. The deeper picture was Jesus was trying to teach that healing on the Sabbath was actually quite appropriate. 
He would say to them, you know, your animal falls in a pit on the Sabbath, you'll go get him out, but this woman who's been bent over for years and years, you, you're bothered that I straightened her out on the Sabbath day? What's your problem? But a spirit was involved in that. There was a spiritual issue behind that. Now, not, that's not always true when it comes to a physical ailment. We know that. But, but here, Eli, he, he was losing his sight. And that was true of his spiritual life. You know, some people in life, unfortunately, as they go on in years, they, they tend to lose spiritual perspective. That's not who you want to be. Amen? You want your eyes to open wider and wider as a Christian. Now, in marriage, they say, uh, before you get married, you should have your eyes wide open. After you get married, you should keep them half shut. That's true for marriage. That's a free piece of advice tonight. <laughs> Help me, look. But anyway, but, but it's the opposite when it comes to knowing God. Yeah, amen. Now, notice something else about Eli. He was lying down in his place. We're going to find out later that he's a heavy man. He doesn't see real well. He doesn't move around real well. As a matter of fact, every time we see Eli, he's either sitting, talking, you know, but he's, he's pretty much just lying down. Uh, he's, he's heavy. He's, you know, we sometimes say somebody's lying down on the job we use that as a metaphor that they're not really doing what they're supposed to do. Now, we'll forgive Eli in many points. He's older. You know, he, he, see, he has some physical limitations. But I think his poor eyesight and the fact that he's lying down are two poetical kind of comments, physical characteristics describing, describing uh, the author describing connecting to his, the reality of his spiritual life. There was no frequent vision. And so his physical condition does uh, point to what's going on. But there's some hope here. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple, notice his location, of the Lord where the ark of God was. I want you to notice that even in the dark times and all the terrible prophecy over Eli and his family, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now if you look at the, the lamp of God in the temple, you'll see phrasing like this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that, uh, or it's Exodus and Leviticus, that it was supposed to be lit continually. But there's some evidence that the priest was supposed to keep it lit from evening until morning. And then perhaps it went out in the morning. There's maybe a little debate there. But there's some hope here that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Sometimes when we feel like all hope is lost, everything's dark, you know, there's, there's no light to be found here. We get a hopeful statement that the light of God had not yet gone out. And I would just say, for a spiritual application, God's light never goes out. As a matter of fact, God's light shines the brightest in the darkest places. But sometimes it's hard to see through all the darkness that we might be facing. Notice that the light had not gone out. Samuel was lying down. He's in the temple of the Lord where the Ark of God was. The Ark of God was called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the gold-plated chest with the, the two angels' wings touching on top, 
was the Ten Commandments. And that was what we call the Old Covenant. And the Ten Commandments were in there, but the Ten Commandments were not kept by the people of Israel. Above the chest, most of you, when you think of the Ark, you think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Isn't that a great movie? I found it very entertaining. I love the scene when they decide to open the ark and the fire comes out and gets everybody. People's faces are melting. It's awesome. Bad guys are just disintegrating. Anyway. Yeah, I know. So the lamp of God had not gone out. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. His light lives in your life and that light's not going to go out ever. That light will continue to shine because Jesus is the light of men. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will not remain in darkness, but you will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. So, there's the light there. You can write down, if you want to check um, the, the continuing burning of the lamp, look at Exodus 27, 20 and 21, and Leviticus 24, 1 through 4. The Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ark of God was the mercy seat. In Romans 3.25, Jesus, it points to Jesus' propitiation. You've seen that word sometimes in the New Testament. That Greek word is hilasterion, and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that word is translated mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. The law, the Ten Commandments that we've broken, testifies to God that we are guilty, but on top of the mercy seat, they sprinkle the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps the law from condemning you because his blood cleanses us from how much? All sin. And so Jesus has become our mercy seat. We can't keep the, the Ten Commandments. The, the law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus Christ. But the, the fact that the ark is there represents the presence of God and reminds you of the covenant of God, that God is a covenant-keeping God. It's the ark of the covenant. When they were going to cross the Jordan River in Joshua 3.3, 3, Joshua said to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it and follow it. The priests took the Ark and they were the first ones to go into the Jordan. Joshua tells us the Jordan was at flood stage. That means that the first step probably was a step over your head. It wasn't just put your toe in the water. You know how when we get older and wimpy, is it 85.6 degrees in there? Because if it isn't, I'm not going in. <laughs> Now, wetsuit. Now, when you're younger, you don't care what the temperature of the water is. You just go in. But as I become older, I become much more wimpy about cold water. Now, if you were the priest in the front of the ark that day, you might be saying, hey, <laughs> weren't you supposed to be in the front today? You see, the first step is, isn't a step where you just go up to your ankle. The first step is is a step of true faith because if you don't step, God says, I'm not parting. And he says, as soon as you step in, I'll part. But if he doesn't part the river, you're in over your head, baby. You know what I'm saying? We like steps of faith that we can go like this. How's the water? I, 
God says, no, step and I'll part. Oh, that kind of faith. I don't know if I like that too much. That's when you say to the guy in the back, didn't I do the dishes last night? You're supposed to be up here, right? And it was the priest with the ark, and the ark represents the presence of God, and God was saying, look, I'm going to go in first. I'm going to go in. I'll part the sea. And if you read Joshua, you'll see that he caused the waters just to stop in their place. In other words, the waters just came up in a big wall of water, and God just said, okay, right there. You're not going any farther. Can you imagine me being the priest? Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> Seeing that wall of water just building up. I hope he doesn't say, let go. I believe, I believe, I believe. <laughs> wow, that's faith. And the people crossed. And the ark was the object. God let them stay three days and stare at the Jordan at flood stage. They knew they had to cross it. He let them look at the barrier for three days. And then he told them, now we're going to cross it. Get ready. Consecrate yourself. I'm going to let you look at the barrier. Faith always has a barrier. Faith always has an object that it must overcome, whether it's a giant, whether it's a huge wall that looks impenetrable. And that's the time when you analyze the object at every angle and you've exhausted all of your options. Well, we could build this across. Maybe we can fire somebody else across. Or No, that's not how we're going to do it. And God says, you're going to have to trust me. Isn't that hard? It can be difficult. Numbers 10, 33 through 36 says, Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. And when it, the ark, came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. The ark was a huge issue. As a matter of fact, the ark will become a prominent um, focal point for the next three chapters. Now, God is going to get Samuel's attention. He's lying there. He's next to the ark. Think of the presence of God. And the Lord called to Samuel. The Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. Now, I don't know what the call was like, but I'm assuming an audible voice here. We know it was rare in those days that the word of God came to people. We know Samuel's name means something like asked for. It links to the idea of perhaps hearing. It could mean a God-given child or to ask for something in in the sense of uh, Hannah Hannah asking for uh, Samuel as a child. And Samuel now, the asked for one, is called by God. God just calls him. He called Samuel. And we find out later that he calls his name. And so Samuel is a bright spot in a dark time. And he ran. I notice he's 12. Eli's not moving, but he's 12, right? Or somewhere like that. Then he ran to Eli. Notice his exuberance. And he said, what do you want, old man? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But he wasn't, you don't see an attitude. He didn't say, ah, what does the old man want now? Yeah, do, do you, does this bother you when your children do this? You call their name and they go, yeah? What? And you're like, uh-uh, we're not, no, 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 no. That's a, 
Yes, Father, run, like Samuel did for Eli. Run! What do you want, Dad? I just wanted to call you. <laughs> oh, come on! I just wanted to see how you were going to respond. When, when I was younger, my sister and I, we lived in an apartment complex, and we played at a park that was probably a good mile in the distance. My grandfather, old Italian, very tough man, said, when I whistle, you come. And if when I whistle, you don't come, I'm going to beat you, <laughs> right? So whenever we heard a whistle, whatever kind of whistle it was, <laughs> right? And then we get there. <laughs> Grandpa, what? He go, I don't call you. I don't <laughs> But you didn't want to risk it. Believe me. So Samuel comes running. He says to Eli, here I am. You called. He called me. He said, I didn't call. Lie down again. Go to sleep. So he went and he laid down. And the Lord called yet again. Samuel, now, since he thinks it's Eli, we would assume that he knows what Eli's voice sounds like. Amen? So, the mystical part of God's calling here seems to be very audible, very normal. He hears Samuel. He hears his name. So Samuel arose. Notice the second description. And he went to Eli. I don't think he ran this time. The first time it says he ran. This time I think he's like, oh, okay. So he goes over. So Samuel arose. He went to Eli and he said, here I am. For you called me. I don't know if he was thinking, man, the old man's losing it. But he answered, I did not call. Now notice the tender relationship, my son. Lie down again. You know, it's interesting that Eli calls Samuel his son. His two sons were grave disappointments to him. They wouldn't listen. But this, this young man seemed to be such a child of hope and promise. And he says, no, my son, go lie down again. Now, Samuel, verse 7 did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Now what's interesting about this particular statement is if you look at 1 Samuel 2 and look at verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Would you notice? They did not know the Lord. The phrasing is almost exact. Now, what is going on here? Well, there's a key little word in the description of Samuel in verse 7, chapter 3. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He, we see him ministering to the Lord. We see him growing in favor. We see him, uh, at least I think five times so far, ministering before the Lord, growing in favor. And, and yet, he doesn't have a personal relationship with God yet. But I think... It's clear that Samuel wanted to please the Lord. The difference between Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. Samuel's a young man just starting maybe to get tuned into the voice of God. Just kind of on the cusp of a personal relationship with God. Which often, if, if you're raised in a church, sometimes you, you live your life on the faith of your parents. Let's face it. This happens with church kids. They go to church because that's what the family does. And a lot of them, because I've talked to a lot of them, say... 
You know, even though I was raised in the church when I was 15, that's when I felt like I became, or when I was 16, you know, the Lord called me and I feel like instead of just the faith of my parents, it became my faith. You know what I'm saying? So I think Samuel was around the things of God, but he wasn't quite tuned in to the, to the Lord's voice yet. The difference is Hophni and Phinehas are older, they're priests, they know better, and they've rejected the Lord. They don't know the Lord and they don't care to know the Lord. That's the difference. Samuel just isn't quite there yet. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli. I don't know what this exchange looked like or how he walked or if he was a little flabbergasted. And he said, here I am, emphasis, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. Sometimes when we're trying to discern God's voice, we can get impressions, right? And, you know, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, right? And so I I think for all of us, we'd probably all make a confession tonight that as much as we want to live our spiritual lives from impressions, that's not always the best way. Because we don't always know when it's God or when it's us or when it's our flesh or what it's what we, we are hoping to hear, it can be very confusing. I will say this to you, though. If you're going through a time like that and you're trying to discern God's voice, always start with God's word. If, if you are pursuing something right now that you could go to a Bible verse and that Bible verse contradicts your actions then you need to make a decision whether or not you are going to bow to what you already know is revealed. Amen? Now, some verses are a little tougher to deal with, and we all know that, but my point is, if you have a clear Bible verse, start there. Don't try to get impressions or watch Oprah for confirmation (laughs) of your decision-making. Don't do that. Because that's, that's like the guy who says, you know, he's on a diet and he's never supposed to eat donuts again, but he feels like the Lord led him to the donut shop. And somebody, his friend says, well, how did you know? And he said, well, a parking spot opened up right in front of the donut shop after I circled 28 times. Yeah. I mean, the outcome was predictable. <laughs> you just got the answer you wanted. We've got to be careful. Now, I think one thing in discerning God's voice in places where we can't go to a direct Bible verse is see if you get confirmation. See if it, if it happens multiple times. Don't, don't just go on a subjective whim where you think you caught something. Look to confirm through God's word first, through good counsel, through prayer, etc. So Eli figured out that the Lord was calling the boy and Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. So Samuel went and he laid down in his place. Now this is some glorious advice from a man that didn't always do everything right, but what a great piece of advice. He said, If you hear this voice again, here's how you should respond. Speak, Lord, your servant hears, or I'm listening. When you come into church, when you turn on a sermon... When you open your Bible, that should be ringing from your lips. Speak, Lord, 
Your servant is listening. You see, if you call yourself a servant of Jesus Christ, then when he speaks, what do you do? You do what he says, right? So your servant is listening. I'm tuned in to what you would say to me, Lord. And I don't know how long it took, but certainly uh, Eli and Samuel had to be you know, kind of on pins and needles. Is he going to do it a fourth time? Is he going to speak to me again? We can get you know, a little uptight about those things. And Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. One who says, Lord, I am your bondservant. Speak. I'm listening. You know, oftentimes in the Christian life, we kind of flip that around and we say, Lord, um, I'm going to speak and you listen to me. And there's certainly a place for that. You know, we pray to the Lord. We, we put our petitions before him and we want to do that. And that is a big part of prayer. But let us not forget that we also need to be listening to the voice of the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about some completely subjective experience, but I am saying that as we read Scripture, as we meditate on God's Word, and as we seek His face, we need to have ears to hear what He's saying to us and a heart to obey. Now, the problem with Hophni and Phinehas is that they didn't know the Lord, and even when they were warned by their father, they wouldn't listen. But Samuel had an open heart. And God was speaking to him. And Samuel is going to become a great leader of the nation. Samuel will not be a perfect man, but he will be a man consecrated to God. In fact, we've mentioned in previous studies that he probably has, from childhood, from the beginning, a Nazarite vow. And he is fully committed to the Lord. His ear is open to the voice of his master. When you decide to become a Christian, it's not just about a ticket to heaven as incredible as that is. It's not just about your sins being forgiven, as glorious as that is. It is about you following Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And Lord means master. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And Jesus paints this picture at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of two people. One person hears his word, hears his message, hears what he says, And he does not act upon it. And Jesus said, he's like a man who built his house upon the sand. And the winds and the storm and the rain comes and that house falls because it has no foundation. Sand is a very poor foundation. I'll show you another man. He's a man who hears the same words, the same sermon, the same message, yet he has ears to hear. And so he has built his house. He's like a man who built his house upon the rock. And when that same storm and winds and gale forces blow against that wind, though that house maybe gets blown around a little bit, it does not fall. And there are many scholars that believe that this points all the way forward to the the winds of judgment day, if you will. And uh, it all comes down to whether or not we are willing to hear and respond to truth.